Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started. Welcome to the episode. I'm Dr. Armin Feldman, and uh, thanks to all of our loyal listeners and viewers. And I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and partner in Physicians Legal Consultants, Dr. Mike Bummer. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, and hello to our listeners on the audio podcast, and hello to our viewers on the YouTube stream. This has been a lot of fun. This is our third or fourth video episode. And you know I'm going to say it. We have another good one in store today. This is going to be a good set of topics. I think we do. So I want to mention before we start that something we're both excited about, if you are not part of the LinkedIn community, whether you're an attorney, a physician, uh, if you have a LinkedIn account, join and connect with Dr. Armin Feldman, Dr. Mike Bummer. Send us a connection request. We're doing something pretty cool that we started in the last two weeks on there. And it's LinkedIn has this great technology of a newsletter. And it allows delivery of a lot of links, information. And we started sharing some cases and additional information about these types of cases and our reports and various you know angles on medical aspects of cases that we're working on. But it's really easy to distribute them via this LinkedIn newsletter technology. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And you know, as you know, the only constant in life is change, right? So uh, we like to, and we pride ourselves on keeping up with the latest technology. So I'd second what Mike said and uh, go over to LinkedIn and see what we're doing that's new. The nice thing too, Armin, about LinkedIn is anyone who has a question or might have a case that they want to see if we could be helpful with, they can send us a message 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we check those uh, daily, if not sometimes hourly, because we get notifications. It really is one of the easiest ways to reach out to us. Of course, you can always send us an email at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. But LinkedIn has really been a great interactive networking tool for for us with other physicians and attorneys. That's right. So shall we get on to uh, our topics for today? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. You want to go first? Yes. Yes. So just to give everyone a a quick preview, uh, we are going to discuss two different very common injuries slash medical diagnoses uh, that pop up first in medical malpractice law, and second, Armin's going to discuss a really common injury in car crashes that he sees. And uh, there's no reason to keep anyone in suspense. Armin's going to talk about complex regional pain syndrome, which is often a missed and very, very costly damage in injury cases. And 
I'm going to start today with uh, bile duct injuries during laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Great. So the reason that I personally chose this injury, Armin, is I've reviewed a couple cases over the past six months, and mm -hmm. the common theme in my research and discussion with experts who do these cases is that this is one of the most common litigated injuries in medical malpractice law in the world. And yeah, I'm glad you're bringing it up. Laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which fancy way of saying using little holes and scopes to take someone's gallbladder out, usually because of gallstones or what's called cholecystitis, which is an inflammation or infection of the gallbladder, is really common in middle-aged people, 30s, 40-year-olds, extremely common, even more so in women. And the procedure itself, laparoscopically, is generally uncomplicated and, and very well tolerated. People can have uh, same-day discharge and do very, very well without much pain. Mm -hmm. The problem is, like any surgery, there are some really important structures near the gallbladder. And I'm actually, for, for our listeners in the audio podcast, bear with me for about five seconds here. But for if you're not watching on YouTube yet, please hop over to YouTube because I'm going to show something on our screen here on YouTube. The anatomy around the gallbladder is very, very interesting. There, this big part up here is the liver. And these structures next to the gallbladder here, the two most important structures are this right uh, cystic artery, or I'm sorry, the the uh, the uh, cystic duct and the right. cystic artery. And I have lines drawn because what I did when I made a video for one of the attorneys is I wanted to show him what should have been cut and what can be commonly injured and can be very, very serious is this common bile duct or any of these other structures over here like these arteries that feed. This... Uh, this diagram makes it look really simple, like a seven-year-old could kind of just <laughs> right. you know, right. cut in the right area. But when you see this surgically, these, these tissues are all, these structures are all combined in a clump, kind of going toward the gallbladder, going toward the liver. And you have to meticulously dissect and clean them out to know exactly what you're cutting. And what happens sometimes by negligence and sometimes by a, a known complication or difficult anatomy or scar tissue of sorts, one of these structures, specifically the bile duct, most seriously the common bile duct, can be injured and leak bile into the patient's abdominal area. And this is extremely serious for many reasons. It, it's not easy to repair a bile duct. It's not like saying you uh, you kind of you know hit a uh, separate part of the tissue. Like sometimes, if there's a bowel injury, you can actually repair the bowel injury and and just watch things closely, and someone can do quite well. Injuring the bile duct systems because of their size and how fragile they are is mm -hmm. often very, very, very serious and difficult to repair. 
So, so Mike, you said that sometimes it's negligence, sometimes it's a complication. You're going to talk about that? Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll just jump right into that. And okay. what the attorneys want to know, because most of our attorneys, you know, especially the ones doing frequent med mal law, they're, they know about this. They, they've, they've gotten these complaints and, and inquiries, but the really breaking it down, I was able to isolate. I even created my own checklist of hmm. eight different questions because this, these cases come in so frequently to review eight different hmm. questions that, that you have to ask when reviewing the case for to determine if there was negligence or if this was just a reasonable known complication. And so right. I'd like to just share um, three of them today. I don't want to get into all eight. And certainly if anyone listening has a case like this, uh, you can reach out either like we talked about on LinkedIn or sending us an email at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. But I want to just highlight three of the questions that I put together on my own checklist that help me determine if this is negligence. Great. So first is, was the bile duct injury discovered intraoperatively? Mm. And if it was or wasn't, again, these eight, these eight questions are not black and white. They're not um, absolutes on negligence or not. But if an injury to the bile duct is discovered intraoperatively, it now, um, in a way, lends some credibility to the surgeon that they were carefully observing their surroundings during surgery. They may have just had an honest uh, um, difficulty with a portion of the surgery. And did they make any attempt to repair it? Mm. And one of the nuances that I want to highlight from that, separate from did they attempt to repair it, is mm. was the injuring surgeon actually qualified to repair the bile duct because of its great level of complexity. Does that take some special training or? It does, it does, because depending on the, the severity of the injury, sometimes the bile duct has to actually be re-implanted hmm. into a portion of the small bowel or the liver to allow this person to continue to have normal biliary function. And not all general surgeons have special training in the bile duct system. And so again, if they referred the case, called in help, um, were they qualified, were they not? These are, these are just, again, one, one group of questions that I run through whenever I'm analyzing if I felt like the surgeon uh, was in fact negligent or not. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are actually biliary specialized treatment hospitals and surgical centers wow. regionally that serve bile duct problems. And it's not just for injuries, but there's bile duct cancers that occur right. that require very specialized treatment. And so... Well, let me ask you a question about that. Yeah. So would it be appropriate if the surgeon saw that the bile duct was cut uh, to note that, leave it as is, and then refer the patient on to one of these specialty clinics or is that does that not make any sense no unfortunately it is such a an acutely serious problem that can yeah. later lead to widespread infection what we call sepsis sure. that it needs to be handled and addressed immediately okay yeah it's it's a life or death situation and even with injuries that are repaired appropriately the literature 
supports that these patients often go on to have a lot of issues later. Uh. Which is why one of the other reasons it's so commonly a topic in litigation. Yeah. So jumping to another one, because again, these all have a lot of nuances, hence why it helps to have a doctor or surgeon kind of go through these with you. Um, Someone who misses a bile duct injury, it's actually pretty common because they they either, there could be cautery that they they hit the bile duct. There could be a clip that uh, injures the bile duct and then it drains and leaks bile into the abdominal cavity. And... A patient oftentimes with a small leak will be healthy for one, two, three, four days. And then they come back to the ER. And this is where litigation and and patients get very sick, damages go through the roof, and people die or end up with lifelong complications. Yeah. And the question is, was appropriate workup and testing completed and was there a high enough index of suspicion of a bile duct injury after someone had the surgery Mm -hmm. and i'm talking that you know this can be somewhat common sense in a way if if someone you know a 44 year old woman has a laparoscopic cholecystectomy the procedure is deemed completely normal she's sent home later that same day four days later if she comes back to the er with some loss of appetite, abdominal pain. You check labs and she has an increased bilirubin level. That's a blood, that's a level in the blood that is common in bile. And if they're leaking into their abdomen, their bilirubin level can be up. If their white cell count is up and then you you tell this woman that, oh, you know, you must have the flu and uh, she's COVID positive. So you you give her um, an antiviral medication and send her home. Yeah. That usually doesn't cut it because she had major surgery recently and she has a risk for a bile duct injury and leakage. And so absolutely correct imaging and a high index of suspicion must be held. And sometimes these patients don't get this care. And this is where litigation can be successful. And are you okay if I just jump to the third one? I feel like I'm on a roll. Yeah, go (laughs) One of the last uh, ones I want to talk about today, again, I, there's there's eight of these that I run through. and But what, once an injury is detected, is the appropriately, is it le- appropriately managed and worked up? There's a test that a lot of times people may have heard of. It's called ERCP. And what it stands for is endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. And what that essentially means is that the doctor surgeon can use endoscopy, which is a camera that combines that with x-rays to assess the biliary tree and the hepatic bile duct system and the pancreas uh, duct system. And if that test is not done, it's very difficult to know that you have a leak. And Uh Mm -hmm. very importantly, that test also has the ability to treat, which is very unique, I might have you, that Mm -hmm. a test can treat because they can also at the same time place a biliary stent 
and they can also sometimes even release a sphincter to allow the bile to flow better. It's called a sphincterectomy. And that can sometimes be the absolute difference maker in how someone's uh, course and prognosis is from this injury. Yeah. And if this isn't done in a timely fashion, it can make or break how this patient ultimately heals and recovers and what their long-term prognosis is. Hmm. That's really interesting, actually. And it's nuanced. And so that's why, you know, going through these three and the other five that I've isolated really help determine, you know, good, um, I'm sorry, bad medicine from just a bad outcome. And, you know, that's a common theme in MedMal law that I know all of our attorneys listening who've who've dealt with these cases know that there's there's normal risks to surgical procedures and you know patients accept a certain level of risk with proper informed consent but this is a guideline that is very useful whenever looking at one of the most commonly litigated surgical injuries so and on that theme armin i think uh if anyone wants more information on this, if you if you'd like to discuss one of these, again, LinkedIn, uh, send a message to Armin or I, and or send an email to comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. And right. should also mention real quick that if you're listening to this and you like this content, you can go ahead and subscribe to our channel, follow us on iTunes, Google Play Store, wherever you're listening to the podcast, and on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and also the they have that bell. It's a notification bell. So you get alerted on our new episodes. And Armin, why don't you talk about the common uh, injury that happens that you've seen in uh, car crashes and other injury cases? Yeah, great. I, I'm going to stick with our theme of things that are common, but uh, that our listeners may not know about. So Mike, this is a case of a 39-year-old man who, while he was at work, was struck by several stacked metal plates. They fell off a shelf that was located above his head, and each plate weighed 25 pounds. Well, he got a crush injury to his right arm, and dealing with uh, our dealing with crush injuries, not uncommon. So this client underwent three surgeries to repair his injuries, including broken bones. He had tendon and ligament tears as well. He had damage, I won't go into it, but he had damage to his right elbow. Now, approximately one month after his last surgical repair, he began to have very severe pain in his right arm. Then uh, approximately six months later, uh, he started to have severe pain in his left arm. And eventually, he also had pain in his left leg. In fact, he became completely debilitated by this pain. Uh, In fact, at one point, I was in the hallway uh, of the attorney's office that was t- who was representing this guy. I was going in to talk about another case. Obviously, he was coming out because he had talked with his attorney. I had actually interviewed him in person at the attorney's office, I knew. So I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, well, doc, I'm not doing well. I've got horrible pain. In fact, I what I really want to do 
is schedule an appointment with my surgeon and ask him if he would just please cut off my right arm. Can you imagine? That's so, horrible. yeah. So by 12 months later, uh, after his last surgery, he required a cane to walk and he had completely lost the use of his uh, right upper extremity, his right arm. And what so, was the, up to this point, what was mm -hmm. the diagnostic uh, final answer as to what was going on? Do you, did well, they? Yeah, but you know, the, by the time he, this movement is characteristic for what I'm going to talk about. So the, the problem usually starts in a, an extremity, one or the other, leg, foot, arm, hand. And in, in fact, Mike, in 92% of the cases, the literature tells us that this spreads. So, uh, and this pain is excruciating. And so um, by the time that it was spread to his left arm, the doctors pretty much knew what was going on. And this is a case of complex regional pain syndrome. And I thought, this is, after reviewing so many cases in which, I mean, it's not coming up all the time, but um, after reviewing so many cases of complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS, that, first of all, I have to tell you that uh, for me, uh, it's my observation that this condition, it's hell on earth. And I have to tell you, my heart goes out to people that have complex regional pain syndrome. So for, the, for our physicians listening and maybe our attorneys as well, the old term for this condition was reflex sympathetic dystrophy, RSD. You may know it under that name. And I have, uh, as I said, I've been surprised at the number of cases that have come up over the years. Now, CRPS, it's associated with dysregulation of the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. By the way, the autonomic nervous system, that's a network of nerves that regulates unconscious body functions, like, like breathing. And it results in multiple functional loss, impairment, and, and usually disability. Now, C, uh, CRPS, it's, it typically worsens over time. And Evidence has led us to conclude that complex regional pain syndrome, it's a multifactorial disorder with, and it has clinical features of nerve inflammation and nociceptive. That means the processing of noxious stimuli, nociceptive sensitization, and that causes sensitivity and or allodynia, which is a fancy word for having pain where it's not usually present. Uh, vascular disorder, maladaptive neuroplasticity of the nerves, and it's all generated by this aberrant response to tissue damage. That's what this is. There's tissue damage, and then in a certain number of people, there's this aberrant response, and they get complex regional pain syndrome. Remind me again, where did the plates hit this patient? Right arm uh, they fell off the shelf and they hit his right arm and elbow, forearm and elbow. And did you mention, or did I just hear it wrong, that he also had pain in his leg? Yeah, that came later, though. It, wow, okay. Yeah, so first 
by the way, this can uh, frequently happen after surgery. Uh, it's not, it can happen just with the trauma too, but in this case, it happened after the surgery, right pain, right arm pain first, a little later, left arm pain, a little later than that, right leg pain, excruciating pain, and some other symptoms that I'll talk about. And this is from tissue trauma, like the crush injury, not right. necessarily a, we, I, I believe there's common understanding out there of people who have spine pain or uh, neurologic um, stenosis or a slip disc or herniated mm -hmm. disc causing pain, kind of like you're prescribing or describing. But what you're kind of really saying not is very definitively, this is peripherally uh, meaning from the, from the actual tissue crush or damage, it's mm -hmm. causing the release of these various chemicals and, and signals that are causing this pain syndrome. Right. Abnormal signals, right? Like okay. being hypersensitive. You just touch the arm and it, oh my God, it's so much pain. Or there's pain where you don't expect it to be uh, typically. Or if you did a physical exam and you just pinprick somebody's arm, you wouldn't expect much. And that can cause just tremendous pain. Do you and, think this gets missed by physicians frequently or once they find their way to, to most physicians, does this, does this get picked up? Yeah. You know, I don't think it gets mit, missed a lot once it's full blown. But I will tell you what I think happens, what I've read in the, lit, in, in, our, in the cases that we go over. A lot of times the uh, client is accused of uh, either malingering or being driven by secondary gain. Uh, a lot of times they're given in the beginning, they're given narcotic medications, and uh, then they're accused of drug seeking. Uh, but that happens a lot. But I don't think the diagnosis gets missed. So unfortunately, the treatment for complex regional pain syndrome is complicated. Treatment involves drugs, physical therapy, psychological treatments, neuromodulation like biofeedback therapy. And again, unfortunately, the treatment is often unsatisfactory, particularly if it started a little late. Now, in fact, in this case, uh, oppose, the opposing doctors and the opposing counsel was saying, ah, this guy's just malingering, right? So what this case brings up uh, in terms of our working with the attorneys is the attorney that hired me wanted my opinion, whether I thought the client did or did not have complex regional pain syndrome. And the other thing it brings up is as medical legal consultants, we are very detailed, very um, take a lot of time and get really familiar with the medical records in our cases. So there are certain criteria that make this diagnosis uh, yes or no. And these criteria, for whatever reason, they were um, overlooked, let's say, uh, by uh, uh, posing uh, doctors, IME doctors, and so forth. So, in fact, Mike, I've seen clinical information, laboratory results, history and physical information, other kinds of information overlooked. So, in this case, 
it was my opinion that the IME doctor who wrote the report overlooked information that was actually in the medical record. And the value of my report for the attorney was based on my finding evidence right in the medical records that supported the diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome. So for example, uh, in this case, some of the couple of things that were overlooked were uh, what was reported in the client's physical examination, like loss of range of motion. And in laboratory data, there's a special test that can be done that measures the amount of sweating that a person has. Uh, and people with complex regional pain syndrome have an abnormal sweating. And oftentimes the, their skin is quite dry. And this test was positive. It was done. It was positive, but it wasn't commented on. And it's a critical critical factor in meeting all of these criteria. And there it was right in the medical records. Good job. Uh, yeah. So I don't want to go into a, a long explanation of the criteria, but uh, suffice it to say, there are different uh, methods to, they're, they're different sets of criteria. So the set of criteria I like to use is a set of criteria that's done by the International Association for the Study of Pain. And they have kind of a, a standard thing. They update it regularly. Now, interestingly enough, in the Colorado uh, workers' compensation rules, the criteria are slightly different, right? So, uh, but the criteria, there, there are four sets of criteria that have to be met. Um, so very briefly, like continuing, first one, continuing pain that's disproportionate to any inciting issue. The next set of criteria uh, have to do with sensory problems like uh, hyperthesia, uh, uh, increased pain or pain where it isn't, uh, where it doesn't normally take place. Uh, changes in temperature, changes in skin color, changes in uh, skin uh, color asymmetry in the skin. The next one is uh, swelling. Uh, and the next one is changes in range of motion. Also, there could be changes in hair, nails, and skin, like the, the thinning of the hair, the thinning of the nails. Third one, is at the time of the evaluation, two or more of those things that I just mentioned need to be present. And finally, that there's no other diagnosis that better explains these symptoms. And that's kind of was, was my task in this case, is to outline my opinions, back it up with evidence, right? Like evidence from the physical exam, evidence from the literature, evidence uh, from the testing that was done. And uh, I was able in my report to go back to the set of criteria and say, I can show you in the medical records where this client had this, had this, had this, that were all positive and the diagnosis really shouldn't be in question. Did you also estimate future costs that this client was going to need on this report? No, you know, this report, the attorney specifically, there was a lot of rumbling on the other side. He's malingering. He's seeking drugs. Maybe he just wants the money. He's, he's secondary gain issues. And 
what the attorney really needed help with was nailing down the diagnosis. Uh, and I was able to help her Great. nail down that diagnosis beyond a shadow of doubt. It's fantastic. So, I, Good I, case. I could talk more about it, but uh, I think that as an overview for our listeners, I think that's a good good overview. Good start. I agree. I agree. I, I say we wrap it up here with two sure. really good topics today. And if you're on audio and want to see us on YouTube, you can just go onto YouTube and search Physicians Helping Attorneys. Our channel pops right up. Uh, comment on the video if you're watching. We love comments. We love questions. And again, that LinkedIn newsletter, uh, make sure you connect with Dr. Armin Feldman or Dr. Mike Bummer on LinkedIn and follow us on the e either on YouTube or on our audio podcast. There's all kinds of ways to bring more Dr. Bummer and Dr. Feldman into your life. <laughs> and finally, I would say if you're an attorney and you have a case, you have a question about a case, you should contact us at comments at physicians helpingattorneys.com. Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. Thank you.